0: Reacting to the world's best science.
1: The Naked Scientists News Flash. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists News Flash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith and Kat Arney, while Sarah Custer Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history. Coming up. How the Arctic Circle may contain far more oil and natural gas than we previously thought.
0: There could be as much as 13% of the world's as-yet-undiscovered oil lurking under the Arctic. Not just oil up there, of course, lots of gas. In fact, their data suggests that there's three times the energy-equivalent amount of gas buried under the Arctic than, than oil. The downside, slightly, for some nations, is that it's all in Russia.
1: And archaeological evidence of the earliest known case of leprosy.
0: Why this is so important is it coincides with early civilizations going from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to forming villages and towns, supported by agriculture and keeping animals and therefore living together and therefore facilitating spread because leprosy is a very
1: low infectivity but it is nonetheless an infectious illness Plus, Dr Julie Seagra joins us to explain how genetic sequencing has exposed the enormous diversity of bacteria living on our skin. And Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to 1981 and the very first paper to describe the terrible disease that became known later as Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. That's all on the way.
0: Now We start this week with two very important questions. One, how much oil is there under the Arctic? And number two, should we even go there to exploit it? There's a paper in the Journal Science this week. It's by Donald Gautier, and he and his colleagues from the USGS have done quite a clever modelling experiment to work out precisely how much oil they think is under the Arctic. The way they've done this is to basically divide the Arctic Circle, which is quite large, 6% of the Earth's surface is north of the Arctic Circle, into what they call assessment units, AUs. There are 69 of them.
2: And are these like, they've just divided it up into squares, or what sort of thing have they done?
0: Well, what they need to do is to focus on areas where there could be oil. So the first giveaway for oil is, of course, rock. You can't make oil if you don't have sedimentary rock. So what they were looking for was areas which had very dense layers of uh, sedimentary rock, in other words, more than three kilometres depth of rock. And then the next thing they did was to superimpose on that map, which already had hot spots because that's where the sedimentary rock was, uh, various other geological readouts, so things that we know lend themselves to the formation of oil, Sort of geological formations that form traps, in other words, where something could pool underneath a a sort of curved surface, a dome, and it would be impervious rock there, for example. Other, Other sort of data provided by geology companies, drilling companies, petroleum exploration companies, and they've mashed all this data up onto this map to produce this map which gives you some kind of profile for each of those assessment units.
2: But does it definitely tell us there will be oil or gas there?
0: Well, what they then did was to compare each of those assessment units with different regions of the world where there are known oil deposits and they, so they compared the profiles in the areas of the Arctic with the profiles from other regions around the Earth geologically and said, well, how similar are these bits of the Arctic to these other bits around the Earth? Therefore, how likely is there going to be oil here?
2: And of course, the $64 million question is... Is there any? How much did they find? you're going to have to rephrase that.
0: You're going to have to call it the 64 billion barrel of oil question because, in fact, there's quite a lot there. Uh, What they come up with, the numbers they produce, is that there could be as much as 13% of the world's as-yet-undiscovered oil lurking under the Arctic. Um, The total aggregate amount ranges from between 22 billion and 256 billion barrels of oil. Now, let's put that in perspective. The Earth consumes annually about 30 billion barrels of oil. So that's between one year of world consumption and 10 years' worth of world oil consumption. Annually, just buried under the Arctic. But it gets more exciting because not just oil up there, of course, lots of gas. In fact, their data suggests that there's three times the energy equivalent amount of gas buried under the Arctic than, than oil. The downside, slightly for some nations, is that it's all in Russia. Oops. Uh, so we'd better stay on the right side of the Russians or we could have a cold winter.
2: I should think so. So anyway. that's
0: in the journal Science this week and uh, you can read it up. We'll put a link to it on our website.
2: Interesting stuff. And now from one type of oil to another, we always hear a lot about good fats and bad fats and it all gets a bit confusing. But now researchers in the US have studied the effects of the ratio of different fats in human diet and their effect on gene activity.
0: What, what actually is the ratio? Because fat's fat, isn't it?
2: Well, no, there's lots of different types of fat and over the past century, we've seen really significant changes in our western diet including a shift in the ratio of certain fats for example such as omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids now omega-6 fats they're usually the sort of fats found in meat uh, vegetable oils and omega-3 fats are found in flax and fish oils and generally it's thought that omega-3 fats are a kind of bit better for you than the omega-6 fats. Now many researchers have suggested that this shift in fat ratios is is contributing to a lot of bad effects on human health, things like inflammation, and this is a key player in autoimmune diseases and allergies, and even in things like diabetes, arthritis, and maybe even cancer. But now, researchers led by Floyd Chilton, and he's writing in the Journal of Biological Chemistry this week, they've carried out quite an interesting little study using human volunteers on a controlled diet to try and understand more about how these changes in the fat. ratio might actually affect our bodies So what
0: did they do? Did they give people different amounts of fat to eat?
2: Well it was a a very simple study. Now what they did is they looked at the evidence from history and this suggests that our our prehistoric ancestors lived on around a 2 to 1 ratio of omega 6 to omega 3 fats but in recent years our western diet has a ratio of around 10 to 1 so a lot more meat fat in our diet compared to fish fat. Now what they did was they took 27 healthy volunteers and they fed them on a controlled diet containing this lower 2 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fats then they measured the activities of certain genes and certain markers of inflammation and immune activity and maybe unsurprisingly they found a significant drop in the levels of these important molecules in particular one called PI3 kinase which does play a crucial role in early inflammation.
0: Two things though Kat I mean one is that this is a very small study so you have to be cautious Mm -hmm. how you interpret that and two when you enroll people in a study like this is there not a danger that you could change other things without realising it in the way they eat, the way they behave, that kind of thing, and that could have a knock-on effect and make it look like you've done better?
2: Absolutely. It's, it's a very small study. It's still really early days for this kind of research, but it's, it's a very tantalising glimpse at what might be possible through manipulating the ratio of fats in the diet and maybe explaining why we see so many of these sort of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases uh, nowadays. So watch this space.
0: Well, I'll certainly be tucking into my mackerel later. Oily fish, definitely. Now, very interestingly, this week, scientists have Uncovered what they think is the world's oldest example of a leprosy victim. This is a paper in the journal PLOS ONE, and the pictures are absolutely stunning. Um, I mean, <laughs> take a look at this um, beautiful well, skull. There's, there's, this is <laughs>
2: stunning. All well, that just looks a bit to horrible. an archaeologist.
0: <laughs> this is uh, Gwen Robbins and uh, colleagues who are based at the Appalachian State University in North Carolina. They've been working in a, in a place in northwest India. Uh, this is Balatal, who's uh, up in the northwest of India, and they have excavated a site which goes back. It can be very carefully dated so about 2000 BC, so that's 4,000 years ago, and they've found the remains of a 37-year-old man. We know it's a man by looking at the shape of the pelvic bones because men have a, sh- a different shape pelvis to women. And this body the skeleton shows very characteristic bone changes like these shown in the paper. If you look at the the skull here, you you can see this what's called reactive flare on the surface coating of the bone above one of the eye sockets. There's also a complete hole in the bone uh, adjacent to the underside of the nose and there's also damage under one of the eye sockets and and also in the backbone.
2: Well, it's full of holes and it looks manky, but how do you know that that's leprosy?
0: Well, for a long time people have said that There are a number of diseases that will cause similar bony changes like this. Syphilis is one of them. There are others. But the reason that this seems a good sitter for leprosy is because A we can place it in space and time. There are historical records that go back to within 500 years of this. No archaeological evidence, but but historical records. In fact, there's some Sanskrit hymns which talk about this kind of disease, which, which puts it in the right place at the right sort of time. And two, it coincides with what we know people were doing at this time. We think leprosy possibly originated originally in Africa, and that as people migrated out of East Africa, perhaps they took it with them. It might be that it didn't originate there at all. It could have originated where this person was found in India and why this is so important is it coincides with early civilizations going from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to forming villages and towns supported by agriculture and keeping animals and therefore living together and therefore facilitating spread because epa- le- uh, leprosy is uh, a very low infectivity but it is nonetheless an infectious illness. You do spread it, we think, possibly by respiratory droplets from one person to the next, so it needs people to be in close contact because only a small minority of the population are susceptible therefore you need a big population living together to get enough people spreading it around to keep it circulating otherwise it just would die out so that's why they think that this is important archaeologically, for the simple reason that it's in the right place at the right time, and suggests that that this disease probably came around about 4,000 years ago.
2: Fascinating when archaeology and pathology collide.
0: Well, the archaeologists <laughs> love it because they've beaten the historians for once.
2: <laughs> Good on them. Uh, so, from uh, from very old things to to very new things, and uh, we all need new cells created in our bodies, for example, to replace dead or damaged cells that we might have, and they don't just appear from nowhere. They're created by the division Division of one cell into two new cells and this process is called mitosis. Now scientists at the University of Michigan have used a clever laser technique to get an even closer insight into how mitosis works and how it might go wrong in diseases like cancer when cells just divide out of control.
0: So when you say divide out of control, how does that compare with what normally goes on?
2: Well, normally in mitosis, cells first copy all the DNA that they have, then they line up these two sets of chromosomes in the middle of the cell, and thanks to a microscopic scaffold-like structure called the spindle, the spindle grows in from each side of the cell, it attaches to the chromosomes, and eventually pulls them apart in opposite directions. So you get a copy of each new DNA in each new daughter cell. Now, if this goes wrong, then the new daughter cells may end up with the wrong number of chromosomes, and that spells bad news. And for many years, researchers have tried to understand how the cell manages to divide its chromosomes equally between daughters. And now, new research in this week's uh, edition of Current Biology by Alan Hunt and his team may help to explain why.
0: So what have they done?
2: Well, the Michigan team have used high-speed lasers to slice off tiny pieces of chromosomes from within living, dividing, newt cells. They're using newt as a model organism here. And they watched what happened. Now, the pulses of this laser light lasted for only a femtosecond. That's a billionth of a millionth of a second. But they were enough to cut the chromosomes to slice them with that laser power. Now, previously, researchers had thought that something called polar ejection forces, which sounds brilliant, it sounds like something off Top Gun, uh, were at work. Uh, in dividing cells, helping to maintain this tension across the spindle and ensure that an equal number of chromosomes go to each new cell. Now, Hunt suspected that these forces should actually be directly related to the size of the chromosome. So if you cut off measurable chunks of chromosomes, then you should have a measurable and proportional effect on the pull on the chromosomes, uh, on the spindle. And that's what they discovered. They discovered that these polar ejection forces are also an important physical cue. It's actually the force is the cue that helps cells to control mitosis and the direction of chromosome movement. So making sure that the chromosomes go to the right side of the new
0: Well that's very interesting isn't it because of course one major disease which occurs when genetics goes wrong is cancer. Cancer is a genetic disease so does this this help us to gain insights into what's going wrong with cancer?
2: It's certainly really interesting from a a cancer perspective because it, it does shed light on how the fundamental process of how cells are multiplying and also on chemotherapy which actually works to block mitosis in many cases, many types of drugs. But it also helps us to understand how damage might occur in cancer, how you might end up with the wrong amount or a broken chromosome in cancer cells and also other diseases things like Down syndrome that are actually caused uh, when egg cells divide by the wrong number of chromosomes going into the new eggs and that leads to these kind of problems so potentially lots and lots of interest in there.
0: Thank you Kat and again you can read a bit more about that from our website where we'll put the write-up and the reference nakedscientists.com. Now, also in the news this week, researchers have discovered a far more diverse collection of bacteria living on our skin than we thought was possible before. And it turns out that it's not just our good old friend Staph or other species of Staphylococcus that lay claim to our bodily surfaces. And tell us a bit more. Here is Julie Seagray. Hello, Julie. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. You've, pub- you've published this wonderful paper in Science this week uh, about this. How did you go about mapping what bugs were living on who and where?
3: Well, it's really quite straightforward because the skin is so accessible. So we asked healthy volunteers to come into the NIH Clinical Center. And we took something that looks very much like a Q-tip and we just swabbed the bacteria off the different parts of their body, everything from their forehead to behind their ear, to behind their knees, to underneath their foot and between their fingers. And then instead of culturing these in the lab, which has been our traditional method for knowing what bacteria reside on the skin, we sequenced the DNA immediately. So there was no culturing. We just looked at the signature of each bacteria by its DNA sequence, and those sequences are unique enough that we could say this is a staphylococcus, this is a streptococcus, this is a carinobacterium. And we found an enormous diversity of bacteria that we really hadn't appreciated before.
0: Because when you put things in culture, of course, there's a, a selection applied. In other words, some things won't grow in culture, so scientists would have missed them before. But by using genetic techniques, you're able to see what we couldn't see before. How are you then going to take that further? What can you tell us about the, the spectrum of bugs that are on the body surface and how they might be linked to various diseases, for instance?
3: So this is a baseline, and the studies that were done previously that were based on culture really gave us an incomplete view. Now, some of these bacteria, actually, now that we know that we're looking for a Pseudomonas or we're looking for a Carinobacterium, we can now culture them. And it's the interesting thing about culturing bacteria is it's very hard to know what you don't know, but it's easy to find what you you are looking for. So now we tailor the media... For example, a lot of the bacteria live on the oily surfaces of our skin. And when we, add, we really just add lipids or oil to the culture broth, now we can grow these bacteria. We just didn't know they were there before. This gives us a baseline so that we can now begin to examine in eczema, psoriasis, acne, we can begin to ask what is different besides just even what we can culture in the lab. How has the microflora changed? And then how do we have tailored therapies to bring it back into balance?
0: Because some people have suggested that some of those skin conditions that you cite are aggravated by the presence of bacteria and that in fact they drive or stimulate the condition and make it worse. It's not so much that it's just because there's damaged skin there, it's the combination of some damaged skin which gets these bacteria in there in the first place and then they make the problem worse.
3: That's absolutely right. Something like eczema has a very strict connection with a Staphylococcus aureus infection, then there are other diseases like the MRSA, the methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. We know that's a bacterial infection, but we also know that a lot of people have a small, tiny, tiny amount of MRSA that you could find in their nose. They never get an infection. So we're suggesting that it might be the healthy bacteria, the commensals, that keep those pathogenic bacteria in check.
0: I was just going to say, because we have come around to the idea in recent years that having a healthy intestinal bug spectrum yeah. helps to protect us from various things. If you go to a foreign country and you don't get traveller's diarrhoea because you have a healthy microbial flora, could the same be true of the skin? And in fact, people in whom there is some kind of problem with their normal skin bacteria, it makes them more prone to getting infections that a person who doesn't have that problem with their skin flora wouldn't get.
3: Um, that's... Such an interesting idea to pursue because it's interesting from the perspective of science. I think that's absolutely right on, and that's where we're gonna go with these experiments, is to understand maybe why someone has a predilection for developing a skin disorder based on a change in their microflora. It's also interesting from a societal perspective. Why is it that we want to eat probiotics and balance our gut? microflora, but we want to sterilize the outside of our bodies. We have to realize that there are healthy bacteria that live on our skin and that we need to promote their growth. I'm not talking about letting everything grow on your skin. There are a lot of transient bacteria that are bad, and I'm a deep believer in personal hygiene, washing your hands and using soap and all sorts of products. And I I think there's a great use for all sorts of skincare products, but I think we also need to recognise that the goal is balance.
0: I was just going to say, Julie, um, have you been in the shower this month? No, I'm just joking. uh, (laughs) so, So basically the way forward now is to begin to say, well, how do we tie different bacterial populations to different diseases or lack of diseases? Can we understand more about what's healthy? And in the long run, perhaps we're going to see skin creams that are not designed to abolish bacteria, but to encourage the ones we do want, not the ones we don't.
3: Absolutely. And I think there also are intrinsic changes to our skin. The skin of a baby is not the skin of a teenager. It's not the skin of an older person. So we have to understand that these things change with time and that as we change the environment in which we live, we may be altering the microflora. I think these are going to have profound effects on both common and rare skin disorders.
0: Julie, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much.
0: That was Julie Seagree, uh, who is from the National Human Genome Research Institute in the US. She's got a paper in science this week in which she sets out basically what's living on you. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at
1: nakedscientist.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history.
4: This Week in Science History saw in 1981 the publication of an article that was the first to describe a new endemic disorder of the immune system, what would later become known as autoimmune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS. The paper was published by Michael Gottlieb through the American Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and was the first report of a disease that is now estimated to have killed over 25 million people since 1981, Death is usually caused by opportunistic infections that take advantage of the body's reduced immune system, such as pneumonia. At the time the paper was published, Gottlieb was working at the UCLA Medical Centre and the groups of symptoms shown by the homosexual men he examined did not fit any known disease. These included diarrhoea, fever, swollen lymph nodes and thrush infections in the mouth, something which often occurred in patients known to have reduced T lymphocyte numbers. These cells are part of the immune system that seek and destroy invading pathogens like viruses and bacteria. Tests on Gottlieb's patients confirmed they had a very low T-cell count. Other symptoms included a particular form of pneumonia, also seen in immunodeficient children, and Kaposi's sarcoma, a form of skin cancer also related to reduced immune function. Since then, many other symptoms have been recognised since there are many infections that can take hold in AIDS sufferers. Originally, the disease was not known as AIDS. The CDC referred to it by using the names of the associated infections, such as Kaposi's sarcoma and opportunistic infections. But by the end of 1981, in the press it was known as GRID, Gay Related Immune Deficiency. However, in time, it became apparent that not just homosexuals were affected. So in 1982, the name AIDS was coined and became the official name for the disease. At this time, it was still not clear exactly what caused AIDS, but in 1983 and 84, two scientists working in France and America respectively isolated a virus from the lymph glands of individuals with AIDS and concluded that this virus was the cause of AIDS. There was significant controversy over the discovery of the virus, with each lab claiming to be the first to realise that this virus was the culprit – and it was not until 1986 that the name human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, was coined. Gottlieb went on to be an important figure in AIDS research, being one of the first to trial AZT as a treatment. This is an antiretroviral drug and was the first drug approved to treat HIV infection. It's still used as part of the treatment today, combined with other antiretroviral drugs that slow the replication of the HIV virus in cells. These drugs can prolong life by 4 to 12 years for sufferers. Without them, survival once AIDS develops is only around 9 months. However, these treatments are expensive and so mainly only available in Western countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, where around two-thirds of all AIDS sufferers live, these treatments are far too costly. Unfortunately, there is as yet no cure for HIV as it has a very high mutation rate, meaning that once a drug is devised that will work on that particular strain... The virus has mutated and the drug will no longer work on it. Billions of dollars are spent every year trying to find a cure, but at the moment the best cure is prevention, with global campaigns to increase condom use and centres where drug addicts can pick up clean needles to reduce HIV spread. Gottlieb's paper was the first from the medical community to suggest that this disease was something serious and far-reaching, and since its publication our understanding of HIV and AIDS has greatly increased the story does not have a happy ending yet and we have many years of medical research ahead of us before we can see an end to this disease.
1: That was Sarah Custer-Perry explaining how Michael Gottlieb's paper published this week in 1981 first described the disease that we now know as AIDS, which is thought to have killed over 25 million people since that paper was published. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Sarah Custer-Perry, along with our guest, Dr. Julie Seagra from the National Human Genome Research Institute in Maryland. The Naked Scientist newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientists Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science.
3: For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.